Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion, to which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because they anchor us in something which can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. Cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. Good morning, Genesis. Much better. All right. It is my pleasure to read the scripture this morning, and I want to apologize to all of our Hebrew scholars among us for the names that I'm about to slaughter. (laughs) Do you ever think how weird our names must sound to people in other places in the world? But don't think about that now. We'll think about this. 1 Samuel 1, verses 1 through 20. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of the first of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. 
Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Kristen. Well done. How about a hand for that? That was tough. Unbelievable. Everybody, my name is Steve Weens. I'm the pastor around here. Welcome to those of you who are in the room. Yay. Welcome to those of you who are joining us on Zoom or YouTube or Facebook. And welcome to those of you who, like me, do not like that story. Confession. I have to be honest and say that there is only one character in this story that I like. And the characters in this story include God, and God is not one of them that I like. I like Hannah, and that is all. Uh, So when you find a story in the Bible or elsewhere that you either really, really like or really, really don't like, there's probably a treasure hidden in there for you. So don't always avoid the ones you really, really don't like. So I had to do some work this week to find something to like in this story. Uh, And it will bear out whether or not I found it. So Hannah is one of two wives. Biblical marriage 101, anyone? Ever thought about that? Oh my goodness. Hannah is one of two wives married to Elkanah, and she had no children, verse 2. First all-play question. If you're on Zoom, you can use the chat to answer the all plays. If you're in here, you just shout out your answer. This is a way that we can hear a fuller perspective of who we are as a community, who God is as a trinity, and what God might be saying to us. So please feel free just to shout out your answers. They're really all your answers. Any one of them will lead us to understanding more and more much more than we would if only I answered the question or if only I posed the question. So here it is. What was life like for a woman in the Bronze Age like Hannah who has no children? What do you imagine? What is life like for a woman like Hannah in the Bronze Age who has no children? Serious bummer, Bob. Yes, 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 yes. She feels insignificant. Oh, my goodness. Yes, Holly, thank you. Yes, Jane, potentially dangerous. Say more. Yep. You could be left by your husband because you're not doing your job as a wife, and then your spoiled goods known to anyone else that you can't bear children, so no one's going to marry you, and you could actually starve to death and lose your life. Very true. What else? Yes, James, a marginalized existence atop an already marginalized identity as a woman in the Bronze Age. Thank you, James. You want to join me up here and and preach for the rest of the sermon, James, because you are on fire. 
What else? I'm just going to catch up online. Rajan said about what Kristen said before she read the scriptures. I love the non-ethnocentric statement Kristen made about how we think the names of others are weird or silly or not worth learning how to pronounce. Remember when Kristen said, I wonder how our names sound to folks who aren't from here. I love that too, Kristen. Thank you. And thanks, Rajan, for noticing that. So Hannah's infertility would have been seen in addition to all the things that you just said, as a punishment from God. That's how it would have been seen. And we know that because of what we read in verse 5 or 6. On the day when Elkanah, her husband, sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife, Penina, or Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. Thank you very much. Because he loved her, though the Lord closed her womb. So we know that the understanding in the Bronze Age for a woman who could not conceive is that God, not only was it her fault, but it was that God is punishing her. Now, this is one of the things I don't like about this passage. So this is not an all play. Let me just pose it, though. Does God use, did God use to punish women by making them unable to conceive? In the biblical account, when we read in the scriptures, because God closed her womb, does that mean that God used to punish women by making them unable to conceive? Thankfully, Jesus answers the question many thousands of years later. There was a time, if you remember this passage in John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples passed a man who was born blind. And the disciples asked this question, hey, rabbi, because we're just walking, we have some time to talk about it. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, what could someone have possibly, how could someone have possibly have sinned before they were born? <laughs> this guy was born blind, so it was, was it his fault? <laughs> but great question, and I'm glad they posed it because it gave Jesus a chance to respond and to set the record straight. He said, listen, you guys, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. And this is one of these biblical hermeneutics that you can use when you come to a phrase like that. Let's say you're reading your Bible, which some of us do, some of us don't. And whether, whatever category you fall into is 100% fine. But let's say you're reading your Bible and you read and then God closed her womb. And you go, this is ridiculous. You can ask a question as a Christian. And the question is, is this, does this sound like Jesus or look like Jesus? Because in Colossians 1.15, we read, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So when you have a question about God, when you read something in the scriptures like this, you have a question about it, you can ask, well, if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, does this sound and look like Jesus? Did Jesus do anything like this? Or did Jesus say anything that sounded like this? Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So if that's true, then we can say with tremendous force that God is Christ-like. Amen? God is Christ-like. This is a Christocentric hermeneutic. As Christians, we center Christ. 
right? When you read something in the Bible about God that doesn't look or sound like Jesus, like God closed Hannah's womb or God ordered the, the slaughter of innocents, including babies and women and everybody, then we can assume that it's actually not a true characterization about God's nature. Rather, it is a reflection of what the culture believed about God at the time. Does that make sense, everybody? When you read something in the Bible from the Bronze Age, the writers of that Bronze Age can't transcend their own culture. They believed what they believed and that you see it right there in the Bible. We can't see something other than what the culture is. But if you read the entirety of the Bible, what do you see? You see a picture of God emerging that gets clearer and clearer and clearer, and it culminates in Jesus the Christ. Amen? That's a Christocentric hermeneutic, and that's what you can do when you come up to a passage in the scriptures like, you shouldn't get tattoos. <laughs> Anyone a complete sinner in the room? Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. Some of you were like, yes. Um, so biblical literalism insists that every single statement in the Bible must be literally true. But I want to argue that that's the lowest form of understanding when you're trying to understand God. If, you, if everything in the Bible has to be literally taken for as 100% true and standing alone as 100% true, then you run into all kinds of problems. So rather than insist that every word in the Bible is an accurate representation of who God is and what God does, I believe the Bible shows us how humans evolve in their understanding of God as time passes. And that's the beauty of the Bible, because we live in a time right now where we understand a lot about God, but guess what? We don't understand everything about God. And our understanding of how God relates to God's people is evolving and will evolve. So to me, that's great news, because it means I don't have to have it all right right now, and my getting it right right now is not the point. It's can I open myself up to who God is in the world right now, who the world is becoming in Christ right now, and where the whole story is going, right? That's hopeful to me, and that's what Hannah does, even though there's still not much about this story that I like just, just yet, but hang on. So let me give you a couple of examples of how you don't have to subscribe to biblical literalism, right? Was the world really created in six 24-hour periods like the Bible says? Did the Red Sea really part like the Bible says? My answer to number one, maybe. My answer to number two, maybe. Was Jonah really swallowed up by a fish and vomited up after three days like the Bible says? Maybe. And maybe not. It's okay if the answer is maybe not. So here is, well, let me, let me do this first. My, one of my favorite rabbis and teachers is a woman named Rabbi Sandy Sasso. Anyone know Sandy Sasso? I know you do. Read Sandy Sasso. She has written a beautiful book about Midrash, which is one of the ways that we explore scripture around here. Read her. She's great. She says this about literalism. We have to talk about the difference between a true story and a truth story. It may or may not be true. We don't always know about all the facts. It may not be a factual story, but it sure is a truth story. 
So let's talk about what the truth is. Isn't that a delicious question? When you're, when you're wrestling with a difficult passage in the Bible, that you go, how can that be true literally? Or how could God really have said that? Instead of asking, what's the factual? You know, the Bible isn't a re- like, I, okay, am I going to get shot on sight for saying this? But the Bible's not supposed to be historical journalism. It's not supposed to be that. That's not how it was set out to be. It was set out to be much bigger than that. The Bible tells stories that confound us so that we'll get together like this and go, what? Because we'll find out more and more about each other and God. One of the Protestant, one of the um, results of the Protestant Reformation that 500 years later is not so good is that all of us are trying to read the Bible on our own and make sense of it by ourselves. I just don't think you can do much of that. I've come to the point in my life where by yourself, I, I, I just don't know how much you can get. <laughs> but like we used to do these things called scripture circles at Genesis, and I, I, I want to bring them back because they're so rich, where five or six or 10 or 12 people get together with a trusted teacher who guides us through questions like this. And when you sit down for two or three hours in this kind of environment, you go, oh, well, that's way bigger than I thought. So I'll play question. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch up here. <laughs> okay, good. Um, nothing else to catch up, but I'll play question. So if we're focusing on truth stories and not necessarily true stories, then w- here's the all play question and answer with whatever way you want to. What can you trust to be true in the Bible? What can you trust to be true? God. Is that Jason? Yes. Thanks, Jason. Yes. What else? Maybe. (laughs) I don't know who said that, but I loved it. That was Enoch. Okay. What can you trust to be true? Thanks, Bob. What my heart tells me. We've been told not to trust your heart. I think that's not a good way to go. It's even in the Bible. Do not trust your heart. It's deceitful above all things and wicked. Okay. Well, that was written by a group of people that believed a certain amount of things that I don't think is necessarily helpful anymore. Um, Okay. Reagan Granger says, God's love is true. Oh, I love that. Mark Granger, looking for and experiencing truth versus literal truth allows for everything in the Bible to point you to truth. Mark. Get up here and preach. Thank you, Jane. She said, I can trust what people say about themselves. Hannah said, I am suffering. Just like I would trust someone and believe someone that said something similar today, I trust Hannah's voice in that. I am suffering. Whew. So the tr- here are some of my observations so far. The truth of Hannah's story is that everyone, including Hannah, believed that God was punishing her by closing her womb, and that's why she was suffering greatly. 
one of the reasons. She believed she was being punished by God. She believed that she wasn't worth much. The truth of this story is that no matter what time period in which we live, most of us will suffer. Amen? And when we suffer, most of us will come to believe that God has forgotten us, like Hannah did. So with this, the truth that this story leads us to is a question. What will we do in that moment when we are suffering, when we feel forgotten by God, and what can Hannah teach us? I think that's a good one. And you can wrestle with that all day long. You don't have to like it or not like it, but here's a suffering person who's being marginalized, outcast, believes that she's punished by God, and what does she do? And what will we do? So let me pause before I go back to the story. Last all-play question. Thoughts, comments, or questions before we move on? Take a moment. Oh, John, if we are too careful not to attribute negative things to God, then say the second part again. Yes. 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 Basically, we have to not be too um, worried about not assigning some negative thoughts to God because at the end of the day, the, the, the result may be that God changes God's mind and we have to be open to that. And oh my goodness, that was a mind blower. And I'm not saying it very well, John, um, but thank you. Oh my goodness. What else? Thoughts, comments, questions? Yes. Yeah, Kara said she struggled with infertility too and ended up having a child. But over the course of her processing, she didn't attribute the infertility to God. And she didn't necessarily attribute the birth of the baby as a blessing that God suddenly chose to give her. Um, it's somehow all part of mystery, and you, you felt weird because of that. But thanks for saying that out loud. These are the questions I think that we have to wrestle with when we look at how God operates in our world, how God interacts and withholds or gives. I mean, what about someone who has cancer and someone who gets healed or doesn't get healed? I mean, these are all such big questions. Um, Mark Granger online, this way of looking at truth makes 
takes so much of the work out of understanding the Bible. The flexibility and understanding of it is empowering. I agree. Uh, yeah, Katie. Is the crucifixion story true or truth? Good question. I would say the very, whatever the factual account of it is, the interpretation that we've put on it, substitutionary atonement theory and such, has some untruth and tr truth in it. So I think no matter what about the historical veracity of it, the meaning that we attribute to the crucifixion and, and resurrection has very real theological implications about how we understand God. And that's another sermon entirely for sure. But if God has to hate God's own son and pour God's wrath out on God's own son, if that's the only possible solution to forgiveness of sin, then we probably have a God who needs to go back to the brainstorm board. Okay? And therapy. If that's the only way, maybe there's some truth in that. I don't know. But if that's the only, only possible definition, I think we're probably missing some of the bigness of it. So let's get back to the story. After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set before him, I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. Now I love Hannah. I love the Hannah in the room, and I love the Hannah of the scriptures. Uh, I love her tenacity. I love her passion. And in fact, her name, do you know what her name means? It means grace. Which is why I have to say that I don't particularly like the bargain. If you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And he won't even be able to drink strong drink. I mean, that is a real curse. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Well, I'm kind of kidding on that one, but um, I'm just trying to be honest. I'm trying to present to you how I read the scriptures, as, and I'm taking a risk that some of you might be offended, and if that's the case, that's okay. But this, these are, this is how I react when I read a story like this. I try to react with as much honesty as I can bring, as I can muster. I don't like the idea that she had to bargain with God to receive a good and holy desire. It's not like she's asking, you know, for the keys to the entire kingdom or to steal the, a Ferrari or to, you know, I mean, she's asking for a son. She's asking to restore her dignity. She's asking for her arms to be filled. I don't think this is a bad request. It's a good one. And grace isn't about bargaining. It's about receiving a free gift, right? So we have a problem here again. So nevertheless, I think it's what Hannah believes about God. In her time, she believes the only way to get what she desires is to give that back to God. And this is where I believe we can find some grace. So I've come to believe that God will work with us. I call it in whatever sandbox we create. God will work with us in whatever belief system that we have to meet us where we are, to provide us what we need. That means 
that we don't have to believe perfectly right in order to interact with God, to pray to God, to ask God for something. God meets us in whatever state of belief that we are in and listens to us in that place. We are not required to be at a higher level on spiral dynamics, be at least orange. God listens to us where we are, and God listened to Hannah where she was, and I think that's grace. Grace is receiving something without earning it. Now, I have a question. What if Hannah had simply asked for a son with no bargaining? Lord, give me a son. I wonder what God would have done. I wonder. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child. I'm wrapping it up here. The word male child, Hebrew geekery coming up here. Uh, Enos zara literally means, enos means humankind. Not male, means humankind. There's another word that could have been used if it just was about male. So humankind, and Zerah means seed. She's asking for a seed for humankind at a time when the main priest was feeble-minded and blind, and the world or her, the children of Israel needed leadership. This is before King David. This is before um, Saul and all that stuff. This is when... They are struggling without an anointed leader to lead them and unite them. And Samuel, Hannah's son, will be the prophet that speaks for God again in the world and that eventually anoints David. He's a seed that brings hope to humankind. Let that sink in. There's a reason why this story is sitting two weeks before Advent starts, because it hints at another prophet that will be born to a woman that will be a good seed for all humankind. We use the word tov around here a lot. Tov means good. But the idea of tov is that it's uh, a plant that springs up with seed-bearing plants inside of it so that what really is good is when that seed gets dropped and spread out and creates more life all around, that's good. That's what humans are called. That's what creation is called in in the beginning. That's the truth of creation. Whatever, however many days or eons or whatever it took, the truth of the creation story is that what God created, God created to spread more and more life, more and more goodness, more and more hope. And that's what Samuel was. So I think the other truth of Hannah's story is that sometimes in our small acts of devotion, this was an act of devotion that Hannah did. Oh, Lord God, if I can have a son, I will give him back to you. Was it a bargain? Yeah. Does it sound unfair to me? Yeah. But it was her act of devotion. And whatever, whatever motivation it had behind it, whatever belief system it had behind it, the result was tov. It was a sea, a, a a seed for humankind to bring hope. And I just wonder if one of the truths of this story for us is that in our small, secret acts of devotion, and we're going to be completely mixed motives, can we just say amen to that? 
all of our motives are mixed. There's never been one pure motivation in the whole world from any human being. All of our motives are mixed. When we come to God honestly, in in that small act of devotion, I think every single one of those is a seed for humankind. Amen? Every single one of them is a seed for humankind that brings tov and goodness and hope. And when we begin Advent, we, we get in touch again with our longing for the coming of the seed of hope into the world to make all things new, to make all things right again. And the incarnation says God is Christ-like. So in some ways, the incarnation is the most beautiful, even more than the resurrection. It's one of the most beautiful aspects of Christianity. Amen? So friends, may your small acts of devotion with mixed motives, may you pour them out to God. May God hear them. And may those seeds spread out into the world for good. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If If you you find find yourself yourself nearby nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you have have any any questions questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.